Pastor Jim Butler with my second podcast in my series dealing with the common questions about Christianity. Today's focus is on one of the most controversial of all the doctrines, and that's the doctrine of divine election. The most difficult truth for the natural man to accept is God's absolute sovereignty. In fact, I've never met a Christian who denied that God is sovereign. However, however, many tend to shy away from it when it comes to the topic of salvation. The truth is God's sovereignty is offensive to the human heart. And the idea that God orders and controls all things is unacceptable to many. And the reason is that God's ways are beyond our uninspired minds. But scripture affirms that God is supreme over all things and nothing can thwart his will. Isaiah 46.10 tells us that he declares from the beginning to the end that his purposes will be established and that he will accomplish all his good pleasure. God is never subject to what we feel is fair or right, and he never relinquishes his eternal decrees to the decisions of man. All his decisions are made with absolute perfection, omniscience, and with perfect justice. As it relates to election, his purposes for choosing some and rejecting others are really hidden in his secret counsels of his will. God did not choose anyone because they were worthy or more worthy than others, or that there is something praiseworthy in them, nor was his choice based on whether or not he foresaw that they would believe. His decision to save some and not others is solely because it pleases him to do so. Romans 9.18 tells us that he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. But man has a difficult time accepting this. So ask yourself this question. When was the last time you heard a believer say that they were one of the elect, or that God drew them on such and such a day? Those kind of statements sound rather odd to us today because the biblical vocabulary of New Testament writers has really kind of disappeared. But if you pay close attention to Scripture, it's common to hear them speak of salvation with terms like the elect, or the called, or the chosen, or even the appointed. All those phrases were very normal language to the New Testament writers. They had absolutely no shame in the idea of God's providential control over eternal life. Now, to be biblical, we have to acknowledge that Scripture, scripture clearly affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Even though we can't reconcile the two, both have to be accepted because Scripture affirms them both. Theologians call this concurrence, and concurrence is the fact of two or more actions that occur at the exact same time. We don't know how, but somehow the sovereignty of God and the human will work simultaneously to accomplish God's purposes and will. So if we approach election with honesty and without bias, then the conclusion will be that God is sovereign over everything, including salvation. Elections taught throughout the entire Bible, Deuteronomy 7.6 and Isaiah 45.5 tell us that Israel was elected as God's chosen people. Many great men of the Old Testament were divinely chosen, such as Isaac and Abraham and Zerubbabel. And according to Isaiah 42.1, Jesus himself was the chosen one of the Father. The New Testament affirms the same thing. In John 3.18, we learn that the apostles were chosen. And in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, they declare that God chose those whom he saves before the foundation of the world. One of the most 
powerful verses that supports the doctrine is John 6, 65. When speaking to the unbelieving crowd, Jesus said this. He said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. I think that's pretty clear. No believer can come to God without him giving him the grace to do so. In our Lord's high priestly prayer, he prayed this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So Jesus tells us that there are some whom the father gave to him. Well, who are they? Well, they're the ones that Jesus gives eternal life to or the elect. He goes on to say this. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So the ones whom the father gave to Jesus were the same ones that Jesus revealed revealed the father to. And finally, he prayed, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given to me, they are yours. So these verses clearly teach election. The election of those whom the Father knows, they're the ones that he gave to the Son. They're also the ones whom Jesus gives eternal life, and they're the ones that Jesus prays for. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew eleven twenty seven. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. There's one last verse that I want to draw to our attention, and it's found in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, this describes God's elect. They're the ones who are called according to God's purpose. And for them, God orchestrates everything in life for their eternal benefit. Paul goes on to trace this majestic sweep of God's program in verses 29 through 30, where he says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is what theologians call the golden chain of salvation because God's work stretches from eternity past into eternity future. And I want to draw your attention to two observations. First of all, we should note that all the verbs are written in the past tense. Well, that suggests that God accomplished on the behalf of the elect and it occurred in eternity past. So what he did occurred way before the world was created. Secondly, all the verbs create an unbroken chain of five steps that extend from eternity past to eternity future. First of all, he says that believers are those that God foreknew. God's foreknowledge is is very often misunderstood. It's, It's really a lot more than simply to be aware of something. Peter wasn't saying that God simply knew who would believe and therefore he chose them because he saw their faith. That's really a tragic interpretation because it 
strips God of his rightful sovereignty and makes him a servant to man's choices. In this view, then, man becomes the author of salvation and not God. Peter's intention is to show that God has determined before time to know and to love and to save those that he foreknew. For he who foreknew someone uh, describes his eternal personal relationship with the ones that he chose. It also involves the goal or end of that relationship. It says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the likeness of his son. What this tells us is that God determined beforehand what a person's destiny would be. And that, of course, means that they would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, a promise that must be fulfilled. So between the start and finish of God's plan, there are three other steps, being called, being justified, and being glorified. And these steps guarantee not one single believer will be lost and no believer will fall short of God's glory. So all this tells us that God is sovereign and he's sovereign over salvation. He foreknows and he predestines and he calls and he justifies and he glorifies those that he's chosen before the foundation of the world. At the end of the day, we really shouldn't question God's election. I like the way Paul finishes his encouragement to Israel regarding their election in Romans chapter 9. After addressing all their questions, Paul finishes by writing these words in verses 19 through 21. And he writes, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Or who resists his will? Their question was the same as today. That question often comes up. If God is sovereign, then how can he hold us responsible? And if it is true that he's sovereign, then aren't we just robots? Those are questions that we hear quite often today. And Paul deals with those questions. But I want you to listen to his answer. He says in verse 20, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honor and use and another for common use? Paul's point is this. We, the clay, can't call God, who is the potter, unfair. To reject election is to call God's character into question. And unfortunately, many do today. My next podcast in this series will cover the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. So I want to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Until then, may you learn Christ, love Christ, and live for the glory of Christ. Christ.